Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sankhang Namasami Usually at the uh, beginning of a talk it's um, only the person who's doing the talk does the Namatasa. So if any of you would like to step up and <laughs> take the seat. So. Also, just in case you're wondering, um, that little verse that was um, done uh, just now by Sandra and I think Gloria, you did it yesterday. Yeah, this is a. Um, uh, a short passage which is uh, usually used to uh, formally request a, a Dharma talk. And uh, it recounts the, um, the initial invitation for the Buddha to teach. It, uh, as you might or might not know, um, after the, the Buddha's enlightenment, his first inclination was that um, since the, the insight that he had had into to truth was so subtle and so refined and so uh, abstruse that he thought no one is going to be able to understand this, so that he was his first inclination was not to even try and teach at all. Um, which, after having spent uncountable lifetimes perfecting all the virtues to become a Buddha, you might think it was a bit of a waste of time. <laughs> He wasn't going to teach, but uh, mythologically that's how it's, it's said. And so then, um, as this thought rose in his mind, then um, one of the Brahma gods, actually the, the um, Brahma Sahampati, who is the kind of um, the lord of the universe, the um, kind of administrator of the the um, the universe picked up this thought in the Buddha's mind and then beamed beamed down to earth to um, uh, to Bodhgaya and uh, appeared in front of the Buddha in the, the form of a, a Brahmin youth and then kneeling down um, on one knee he, uh, he um, then asked the Buddha if uh, for the sake of those who have just a little bit of dust in their eyes um, would he please teach the Dhamma? And then it's said that the Buddha then surveyed the world with his all-seeing eye and realized that, yes, it's true. There's a few out there that will be able to understand. And so he said, okay. <laughs> so here we all are, two and a half thousand years later. So we can, we can thank... Uh, the uh, the Brahma God Sahampati uh, for this. Um.
Well, considering um, what uh, to to talk about this evening, um, I was uh, uh, again thinking of the fact this is the Easter weekend, and um, today being Easter Sunday, uh, Resurrection Day. Um, Considering how um, different religious teachings, different world religions, yeah, approach the spiritual path, how things are phrased, how they work, and uh, really every every religion seems to be concerned with with three three principal questions anywhere in the world and any kind of culture, whether it's a tribal culture or um, sophisticated modern culture, whatever it might be, there's basically um, three three questions that all religions uh, are and spiritual paths that are designed to to um, deal with. Which, and this is just a, um, a very rough outline. Obviously, um, the first is how did I get here, and then the next one is. Uh, where where are we going? And uh, the third is, what am I supposed to do now? And you can re- you can rephrase it as much as you like, but it's pretty much that is you know, where do we come from? How did this all begin? Where are we going? What am I supposed to do now? So in in Christianity, say they. Um, the story of Genesis recounts the um, how it all began. That's where we came from. Um, the first chapter of Genesis. How uh, God created the heaven and the earth, and and uh, all of the animals and birds and so on, and then Adam and Eve. That's the uh, the creation myth as far as Christianity is concerned. Um, and then, uh, where are we going? Uh, what uh, what is there to look forward to? You have the the um, the second coming, and then the kingdom of God established, eternal life, and then uh, the question of, of what are we supposed to do now, or, or what is what is the the um, the aim of a human life. What can we do with our life? What am I supposed to do with this this existence? Um, I am sure different Christians would diff- would would talk about it in different ways. But um, to me, it seems like the most the most significant thing is what this uh, this weekend symbolizes in the Christian calendar, the um, the Easter. Event which is um, to do with the the conquest of death and uh, you know the crucifixion and resurrection seems to be the, the central symbol of of Christianity and that um, what is it Jesus said something like uh, those who believe in me will have eternal life um, 
And so this, the, the symbols of, of crucifixion and, and resurrection and so forth, I mean, it doesn't really matter how much you, you believe in them or disbelieve in them or, or whatever, but these are, this is what these symbols are talking about, um, the conquest of death. And that as human beings, um, this is what the, the task is before us, is can we, can we transcend death? Can we, can we go beyond death? And this is something that, that um, say, in Christianity is presented in their particular form. So, um, Buddhism is kind of unique in, in, uh, in amongst the, the religions of the world, and particularly Theravada, Theravada Buddhism, where um, this, is, uh, this aspect of the teaching is particularly clear, is that um, the the Buddha refused to establish his his teaching on a kind of cosmological basis or metaphysical basis? So the same questions are still there. You know, uh, where did we? Uh, where did I come from? Where am I going? What should I do now? But um, like the. Um, and the Buddha said, "There's, there's, um, there's different ways of dealing with questions. There are questions that um, deserve to be answered you know, in a straightforward way. There's a, there are questions that um, should be answered with a, a counter question. There are questions which need to be rephrased in order to be uh, answered. Um, and then there are questions which are unanswerable, for which no answer is appropriate." So these questions would come under the, the, the third category of you know, the questions need to be rephrased. Within, um, and it's interesting, I, one, of the, one of the first things I found out about uh, Theravada Buddhism um, when I, I came across it in Thailand about 20 years ago, which was, I found intriguing, was that there was, um, the, uh, the Buddha said that there was no... Uh, the, the ultimate beginning of things was not describable. Because you cannot describe um, how everything began. And it's, it's, in, it's interesting so far as one, there's um, at least one of the discourses in the um, Diganika, the long discourses of the Buddha, that um, maps out a kind of cosmological uh, pattern of, or you know, how a universe begins, fine. <laughs> the, it's called the Aganya Sutta. And it's saying, oh, this is how you know, a universe comes into being, and this is how beings are created, and this is how they develop, and so on. Um, and um, that's all mapped out, but it's clear that that's of no particular significance. It's saying, well, you know, universes come and go all the time. You know, you get a big bang, and then they expand, and beings are, are, are born. Between, between universes, most beings are, are hanging out in the Abhasara Brahma realm, or above, one of the, the high Brahma realms, and then when a universe begins and they all kind of start trickling down and, and being born into the, um, the different worlds, and then when the universe reaches its limit and then starts collapsing, and then there's a big crunch, and the universe ends, and all the, the, the resi- residue of beings kind of filter back up to the Abhasara Brahma realm. And, <laughs> and this is... Um, so that kind of pattern is described but it's clear that the Buddha is not saying um, 
this is the ultimate beginning of things. Like this, this cycle itself has been happening for uncountable um, numbers of times. And how the whole thing began in the first place. Or if we can even think in those terms. You know, the, uh, the Buddha would not, would not address. He said it's one of the four imponderables. That if you try and figure, if you try and figure it out, you'll either go crazy or your head will explode. So the other, the other three, just for your information, are um, the uh, the range of the mind of a Buddha, um, all of the uh, the levels of meditative concentration, jhana, and the different levels of consciousness, if you like, um, the workings of karma. And then the fourth one is the um, the ultimate beginning of things. So any of those four, if you try and figure it out, you know, you'll go crazy or your head will explode. Into se- into s- it will explode into seven pieces, <coughs> to be technical. Not that it really matters. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that, um, it's, it, was, it was intriguing to me that the Buddha would was said, you know, it's he refused to have like a a, a creation myth, and uh, and similarly, uh, at the other end of the scale, where you have um, people would ask, what happens to an enlightened being when they die? You know, okay, so that a person we can we can we're capable of of. Um, of enlightenment and liberation. So then what happens to that such a person when with the breaking up of the body after death? What, be, what becomes of someone? And the, uh, the Buddha wouldn't answer that question. Um, and in, uh, in Indian philosophy they have this thing called the quadrilemma, which, is, which would be to say, um, does, a person, does an enlightened being exist after death or not? Do they, do they exist after death? Do they not exist after death? That's two. Do they both exist and not exist after death? That's three. And do they neither exist nor not exist after death? And to each of these four, the Buddha would say, the question does not apply. And um, there's a lovely exchange between him and this uh, wanderer from, uh, from another sect called Vajragota. And uh, Vajragota can ask him these four these or um, questions, and the Buddha says, it doesn't apply, Vajragota. And Vajragota says, well, well, how can this be? I mean, one of them must, one of them must apply in some sort of way. And the Buddha said, well, it's like this. If, if, if we had a little fire burning here made out of grass and sticks, um, and then the fire went out, then I asked you, did the fire go north, south, east, or west? What would you say? I said, well, the question doesn't apply. The fire didn't go anywhere. It just went out. And the Buddha said, exactly the same way. Um, your qu- the, the, very, the assumptions that you make in the way you put the question represent a reality that does not apply. That is, you're, you're making assumptions that, that do not match the truth. So there's no way of answering this question. And uh, another occasion um, in the this is in the Sutta Nipata where the Buddha is being asked by a, an, um, a young Brahmin called Upasiva, 
and um, and the Buddha says it's like a um, Avi asked the same question. The Buddha says it's like a flame blown by the wind, um, blown out by the wind. Uh, once it is gone, designation applies to it no more. So too, a wise person, when they have um, at the breaking up of the body after death, they have gone, and designation applies to them no more. And Upasiva is still none the wiser for this reply. I said, okay, please, venerable sir, you are someone who understands this. Now tell me, do they not exist, or are they made immortal, eternally free? And the Buddha then says, um, that by which they could be spoken of, when that by which they, uh, they could be spoken of is no more, that by which they could be spoken of is no more. When all means of description have, uh, when all uh, ways of designation have gone, like all means of designation of that being as having a mind or a body or being some place in some time. When all means of designation have gone, then all means of description have gone too. You cannot say they do not exist. But, you cannot also say um, how that existence is. And uh, this is as much as you get <laughs> from, from uh, the Buddha on this, on this question. That uh, he's quite categorical in saying it's not annihilation. It's not what he's teaching. But um, to, to say where to say, you know, how, these, these questions are, uh, are say, we're, we're looking at um, a state of being from our own perception, which is based upon three-dimensional space, individuality, having a, a name, a body, uh, an individual mind, and that um, all of those uh, categorizations um, have to be laid aside. So there's nowhere that the Buddha um, describes, you know, that kind of state. And people say, well, if we put all this work into getting enlightened, and then when the body breaks up, you know, wouldn't it be? You I mean you could kind of you can tell me. <laughs> I won't tell anyone else. Promise, you know. <laughs> and the Buddha would say it's not a matter of of not telling you because I know and. Uh, and um, it's a secret. It's like it's not knowable by the conceptual mind. You can't you can't know it by the conceptual mind. The most that he ever says is, um, "Such a one passes out of the sphere of knowledge of, of gods and humans." That's as much of a lead as you get. So he's. He, he says nothing about the ultimate beginning of things and nothing about um, what is the um, destination of an, of an enlightened, of a, of a person once their, their life has been fulfilled. He refused to enter into that, that kind of cosmological domain and for a very, very important reason. Um, he was very uh, explicit uh, and certainly within within Theravada tradition, he intentionally limited the the range of what he talked about to 
focus on what we could know and see directly without any speculation, without any belief whatsoever. And so there's this famous um, analogy of uh, the handful of leaves where he's walking through a forest and he picks up a handful of leaves from the forest floor and says, which is greater in number? The leaves in my hand or the leaves on all the trees in the forest? The monks knew this was a trick question. Yeah. Few are the leaves in your hand, Lord, but many are the leaves in the forest. And the Buddha said, just so, in exactly the same way, what I know can be compared to the leaves in the forest. What I teach you can be compared to the leaves in my hand. Now, I, I fully confess, when I first heard this, I thought, well, that's a bit stingy. <laughs> <laughs> there must be someone around you know, who, who's kind of got the full scoop on this. So I, that I'm gonna, so maybe I should just kind of sniff around and see if I can track down someone who's got the full, got the full catalogue, and I can go and find out all these things that I've been longing to know about you know, the origin of the universe and so on and so forth. Because you know we are intrigued by these philosophical questions, and this is why you know every culture has produced a whole galaxy of of answers, you know, creation stories and and stories of of um. You know, eternal bliss and, and all what happens when we die and being emerging with the absolute and so on. But the, the Buddha wouldn't even talk about that. He wouldn't even say, you know, that we become one with the universe. He said, no. no. Even to talk in those terms is erroneous. To talk in any term, to use conceptual language at all is to miss the point. Because the ultimate reality cannot be contained within the the limits of conceptual thought, within the limits of language. Uh, an analogy I like to use is like is if you have a drawing of a teacup and then you try to pour tea into it, you get a mess, right? You know the kind of just. Because the, the, the drawing hasn't got enough dimensions. It's three-dimensional tea and a two-dimensional teacup. The, 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 the drawing doesn't have enough dimensions to create, to, to encompass the reality. So similarly, the thinking mind and, and language do not have enough dimensions to uh, accommodate ultimate reality. But that reality can be realized, it can be known, which is the whole point of the, the practice. We can know that truth, we just cannot describe it. We cannot um, conceptualize it. As it says in the, the verses of the third Zen patriarch, um, to seek mind with a discriminating mind is the greatest of all mistakes. Mind with a big M. Seek mind, with a big M, with a discriminating mind, is the greatest of all mistakes. So, um, that was the preamble. <laughs> the, way, uh, the way that the Buddha dealt with these questions, um, and what he, he kind of narrowed his um, subject matter to, was it says it doesn't matter where human beings came from. It doesn't matter you know who created the universe or how or when or or what made space and matter and time come into being. 
You don't need to know that. All you need to know is that right now life is less than totally blissful. You are, I don't think I'm being presumptuous in saying that probably for everyone here, most people here, life is less than, totally, is less than ecstatically blissful all the time. Okay, right? <laughs> and in, in the sort of Buddhist jargon that means that is idang dukang, there is dukkha, this is dukkha. There is the existence of unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, suffering or, or incompleteness. This is, a, this is a common human experience that we all have. So then the Buddha takes, it, takes the question away from how did, uh, how did I begin, where do I come from, but he said, well, that doesn't really matter because actually what matters is where does dukkha come from? Where does suffering come from? And then, um, in terms of, of the second question, you know, where are we going? Or, or um, what's the prognosis? <laughs> then he uh, says, there is dukkha niroda. There is the, the possibility of the complete ending of dukkha, of no dukkha, of, of uh, perfect contentment, fulfillment. That is possible. And knowable. We can know that. We can we can recognize that, and then uh, the the third question, you know, wh- what do I do? How do I, you know, how do, what do I do now? This is um, addressed in um, in uh, or say to to. Um, in symbolic, in the kind of mythological or symbolic form, this is represented by the Buddha's conquest of death. Like on the night of enlightenment, the Buddha, um, as, the, as the story goes, was attacked by the, the hordes of Mara. Mara literally means, literally means death. Mara. Like my name in me is, is Amara, which means, uh, as one Thai monk put it, oh, undead. <laughs> The night of the living day. The, um, so uh, the A at the beginning is the negative, so it means uh, deathless or, or immortal. So Mara is death, Amara means without death or uh, deathless. So that then the Buddha's battle with Mara is literally the battle with, with death. And then have you, uh, you've probably seen these Im- pictures of the, the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree and and the hordes of Mara attacking from all sides with the, the forces of, of uh, fear, of desire. And then the third army is that of, um, of duty, responsibility. These three forces um, assailing the Buddha, but the Buddha is sitting there quite composed, serene. And then all of the, um, the weapons that the army of Mara hurl towards the Buddha, like they throw spears and arrows and rocks, and they all turn into flowers and, and f- uh, fall to the ground around him. Um, and so that there's, uh, there's the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, and there's this kind of um, aura, this sphere of, of light around him, and Mara cannot penetrate. So um, the conquest, uh, this is 
the, the night of enlightenment is um, symbolizing that conquest of death that the Buddha, the one, and this is, say, representing on, a, on a, say, an iconographical level an internal quality. This is, it has a psychological correlate so that when we are awake, when the mind is, is awake, then, and this is what you know, say we've been doing for the last two or three days, a couple of days, is when you're awake and the mind and there's there's mindfulness and clear awareness, then uh, a kind of uh, a frightening thought, a heavy memory arises, or a, a kind of a lustful fantasy arises, or a, a um, an obsessive thought, a kind of favorite tune arises. Then it comes into consciousness, and then we know it. Oh, it's just a thought. It's just a feeling. It comes. It goes. It changes. I don't have to do anything with it. So at that moment, there is the Buddha mind sitting at the immovable spot under the Bodhi tree, on the Vajra seat. And then because that, those, that, that, that experience, that thought or that feeling is being known for what it is, it arises, it passes away. There's, the heart is unconfused and unthreatened, uh, unintimidated by that. Uh, is, is not unsettled by that, and so um, wh- whatever that wh- whatever that feeling was, whether it was frightening or alluring or or interesting, it can't penetrate that that aura. It turns into flowers and and falls. It turns into a flower and falls to the ground. So th- this is like a, a mythological symbol, but it's it's representing a very distinct. Uh, experience that we we all recognize. Now it's also said um, that uh, on the night of enlightenment, what the Buddha was doing under the Bodhi tree was um, contemplating the law of dependent origination. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this with this phrase, Paticca um, Samuppada, dependent origination. So it, it's it's not the case that the Buddha was like absorbed in a, a kind of a profound wordless samadhi under the Bodhi tree. Not at all. It was a, a night of serious thinking, and he was uh, he was using conceptual thought to investigate the whole process of experience. And what Paticca Samuppada, dependent origination, concerns itself with is not the origination of the universe. And it's not the origin. It's not that. But how does dukkha arise? Where does suffering come from? How does it cease? And then the descriptions of the enlightenment concern themselves solely with that. That was the Buddha was was tracing it back. Okay, how does this feeling arise? Where does it come from? What conditions it? What's its source? And following the the chains of causation forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards, forwards and backwards, so that he was getting intimately acquainted, clear in his mind how this this whole thing works, how dukkha arises, how it can be brought to cessation. And this is, uh, and in that, uh, when, when there is insight into that, this is how we conquer death. And this is not just uh, a kind of um, mythological thing of, of you know, being uh, thinking that that's something that the Buddha did two and a half thousand years ago under a tree in 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 uh, Bihar, in northern India, 
But this is something that this is what we're here to do. This week, we're here to to conquer death. Uh, the um, the subject of, of dependent origination is is a vast one, but I'll um, I can try to trim it down a little bit. Um, what it uh, is pointing to is that when there is ignorance, when we are when we are not awake, then there is a um, an identification, unconscious identification with the body, with the with the mental world occurs, and so that the habits that we that, that are there of pursuing the pleasurable, um, running away from the painful, um, opinionating about everything else, and unconsciously creating a, an identity. These, these habits will, persi- will persist, so that as uh, when there is ignorance, when the mind is clouded, when we, when we slip from a state of awareness, then when a feeling arises, because there's the body that has its senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind, then we feel. The body is designed to feel. Yeah, the senses uh, pick up sight and sound, smell, taste and touch, thought. So we we meet with pleasant feeling and painful feeling. Now, if if um, if then out of ignorance, when a, a pleasant feeling arises, what happens is we want to keep it, we want to hold it, we want to own it, possess it, we grasp it. So then the feeling, say a pleasant feeling causes us to desire more of that same feeling. Or if it's a painful feeling, then it conditions us to desire to get rid of it, to get away from it, to escape it. So feeling arises from the, from body, the body and mind, and then, and then feeling conditions tanha, craving, literally, th- uh, literally thirst, craving. Sometimes translated as, as desire, but probably craving is better because we can, there can be desire for wholesome things as well. But in this cycle, the, the kind of um, what Tanha is referring to is intrinsically kind of agitated and slightly deranged. So um, probably craving is a better word. So once that arises, then uh, as that, that as that takes off, then it then grows into grasping. We, we want something, uh, we pursue it, we take hold of it, we grasp it. Um, grasping is upadana, is upadana is the Pali word. Upadana. Upadana also, also means fuel, like the fuel for a fire. When there's grasping, once we've clutched hold of what it is that we've been pursuing, uh, then that um, turns into what's called becoming. And becoming uh, is, uh, this is the, the moment of thrill. This is where um, there's something painful and you, uh, you want to get rid of it. And then the moment when it's gone, like when you, you've got an ache in your leg 
and then you're sitting in, in the sitting meditation and you just shift your and then you're, you're kind of wrestling about what, what to do with it and then finally you decide oh damn it I'm going to move And then when you, sh- when you shift and that, that blissful feeling of the pain disappearing, ah, that's, that's bhava becoming. The, the, moment, the delicious moment is bhava, where we become that, that uh, absence of pain. So just say to follow that up, so there's a, there's a painful, sen- because of the body, there's a painful sensation in your leg. Then desire arises, I want to get rid of it. The grasping is, um, okay, I'm fed up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna shift. Um, and then bhava is when we shift. It's ah, bliss. Ah. So um, then bhava leads to uh, to birth. Becoming leads to birth, and. Um, then uh, and birth uh, leads to aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, along with a lot of other things. But within this cycle, that's described how it is. What that means is that once we have um, followed that that impulse and we've had that delicious moment, then it's like there's beyond that. There's no turning back. Okay, now you've shifted. Okay. So now you're in a new posture, and then what happens is that in your new posture, you're born into a new posture, right? Ah. So then that new posture ages, <laughs> and then you thought you were going to have, you know, when, when you're negotiating with the pain, you say, "Well, I'll just shift. I'll never want anything else ever again. I promise, <laughs> Lord." And then we shift, and then uh, three minutes later, there's a slight, a slight twinge in your knee again. No! <laughs> no, no, not again, please. <laughs> because we are, um, we've dealt with that feeling of dukkha, of, of pain, by escaping from it. So that then, and, and the, 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 the degree to which we've invested in, its, in, in the pleasure of its absence is the exact degree to which we fear that it's going to come back again. And then as it comes back, then we experience Sokapari Deva Dukkha Domanasa Upayasa, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Uh, ego death, in other words. This is the kind of uh, the, uh, the dukkha. This is what the Buddha said. This is the arising of dukkha. This is how dukkha comes into being, simply because of this. Now this we can, we can see, I mean I'm just using this one example, but you can see this happening at every level of your life and in many, many different ways. Um, I've, often, uh, I've often told a story how my first conscious experience of this, but you have to forgive me if you've heard this before, but it's, uh, this is, um, and it has an indelible role in my uh, spiritual um, odyssey. And I was about three or four years old. And 
we had a system in my, we were very, I came from a very poor family, and we had a system in the family where you only got presents when it was either your birthday or Christmas, period. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and uh, we lived near a village. Um, I grew up on a farm. We lived near this village, and in the village there was a toy shop. Uh, and in the toy shop, of course, they had arranged all these highly attractive and different toys. And uh, at the age of three or four, I fell madly in love with this small mauve bubble car. Do you ever have bubble cars in this country? Like a little three-wheeler car with a door on the front? They were made by BMWs, used to make them back in the 50s. So this was a, a little matchbox toy of, a, of a, a small mauve bubble car. And I just fell completely for this, this b- exquisite thing. <laughs> the fact that it was, had this sort of bubble element in it, didn't, the irony of that didn't really catch me until years, <laughs> la- years later. That I was falling in love with a bubble. But, um. <laughs> anyway... Um, so I fell madly for this thing, and, and uh, I begged my mother to buy it for me, and I'd sit, like, every time we go into the village, I'd kind of run to the, the, the toy shop and press my nose against the glass and uh, stare at this wonderful thing. And, and no matter how much I begged and pleaded, you know, the, the, uh, my mother wouldn't buy it. And then, um, as it was coming up either to my birthday or Christmas, you know, one time I went into the village, and, and it wasn't there in the window, and so, of course, I was heartbroken. All this time, I was begging my mother, saying, "Please, please, please, get me, give me the the uh, the little mauve bubble car. I promise you, I'll never want anything ever again." <laughs> and she she knew she was wiser than I was, so she said, "You'll never want anything ever again." Yes, I promise you, ever, ever. Just, just this one thing, and I'll be—I'll never ask you. I never want anything ever again. And I re- and I realized I meant it. I couldn't conceive once I got that that I could ever feel incomplete ever again. <laughs> there was nothing could possibly be missing from my life once I had this totally desirable thing. And I—I uh, I can still remember these conversations. And it was like, I—I—I I, I promised. I said, yes, I promised. And you know, my mother just kind of laughed at me. You know. Anyway, sure enough, as my birthday came round, um, then there was this small box, and you know, I unwrapped it, and there it was. <gasps> Mine, at last. And uh, as my mother um, then took great delight in, in um, pointing out to me, for years and years afterwards, <laughs> that I played with this thing for about a day, and then it was on the shelf, and, and um, or maybe a couple of days, but uh, then it was on the shelf and um, became ordinary. And then uh, as soon as I, I uh, put in a bid for something else, she said, now you told me, <laughs> you said you were never going to want anything ever again. I said, oh yeah, but. Yeah. And this, this was such an impactful lesson that uh, my mother still has the bubble car. It's nearly, seriously, nearly 40 years <laughs> have gone by. <laughs> but um, in all the, the times that we moved, moved house and everything, she, uh, she hung on to the, the little mauve bubble car for um, posterity's sake. 
So that was my first experience of Paticca Samuppada. <laughs> that, uh, you know, we, we want something, the heart fixates on it, and we desire it. And at uh, that moment of desire, the, kind of the universe narrows, it kind of it, it collapses to this one point, like to the object of desire, and that all good in the universe is then concentrated on that one thing that we want, or want to get rid of whatever it might be. There's three, three kinds of desire are, are um, karma tanha, the desire for sense pleasure, bhava tanha, the desire to become, and vibhava tanha, the desire to annihilate or get rid of. So whatever it might be, then that initially there's just a feeling, pleasure or pain or neutral feeling, and then the, the mind snags on it, and then the world collapses, just that one object of desire. And we swear, like, if I could just have that, everything would be fine. If I could just own that, all good in the universe is now located <laughs> in this one thing, this job, this relationship, this little mauve bubble car, you know, this cookie. <laughs> the next cigarette. And uh, then there's a moment of gratification, there's the bhava hit. And, ah, bliss. And then there's the aftermath. <laughs> then having followed that, then we've the, the bliss uh, starts to wear off. And then we see what we've had to kind of shell out, what we've had to do, what we've had to pay. Um, to arrive there, and the fact that the, the experience doesn't make us totally happy forever, and then we realize, oh, what this has cost me, you know, that, you, that another cigarette you smoked, another, uh, uh, another collision that you've had with someone. And it manifests in many, many ways, but, uh, and it's, uh, you can see for yourself that what happens then is that we're left with this kind of desolate feeling, like the thing doesn't satisfy us. Or like if, you, if you get angry with someone and then you, you, you blow up, and then when you're yelling at them, you know, you feel so good. There's a friend of ours in Thailand, a, a, a Thai woman who's a, a, a nun there. Well, I was visiting with, with uh, Ajahn Sumato at her place one time, and, and she was saying, I really tried to give up anger but it's it's so hard. I realize I really like being angry. <laughs> I really enjoy it. You just feel so good <laughs> when you're yelling at someone. But then, you know, you, you have your good, you vent your spleen, and then afterwards, what happens? You feel, well, that was pretty stupid, or there was regret over what we said, or the damage that you cause in that other person. And this is not just because you're, you know, you're weak-willed or you're, or you, you know, you're, you're just not strong enough to kind of carry out your convictions. You know, sometimes we look upon it as a kind of weakness that so we can't just do what we like and then not look back. But it's natural as a, a part of our innate human uh, quality is that um, when we've gone out and pursued a, a desire, followed that that as we've absorbed into it, then as that wears off, then the uh, the repercussions, the 
what we've bought into, the, the addictions that we fed, then become apparent to us. And then we're left in this kind of incomplete state, a kind of this, what, what, you, what you can call ego death, you know, the Sokaparideva Dukkadomanasa Upayasa effect. You know, there's this. So then what do we do? And this is, this is what we mean by rebirth. We've been born into this thing. This, this, this experience is, is not satisfied. It's a new job hasn't done it. The new relationship hasn't done it. The new car or the, you know, the um, venting our spleen hasn't done it. So then we, what happens? If we stay ignorant, then what happens is that um, we might say to ourselves, well, I'm never going to do that again. Okay, from now on, you know, no more. I've had it with that. And we try and, and, and suppress the, the cause of, of, the, of the, the painful feeling, say, and, and which is you know, noble effort. But if we haven't really understood it, then what happens is that because the, the, like the, the desire mind and the, and, the, and the rational mind, they work for different corporations. They're like, they, they're, one's a Macintosh, the other's an IBM. You know, they, they, they don't, they're not very compatible with each other. So the rational mind is saying, no more cigarettes. This is stupid, I've had enough, I quit. Well, the desire mind is, <laughs> is, is busy kind of doing it. Yeah, but I want one. <laughs> Just, you know. Just one. I mean, one cigarette's not going to make any difference, is it? I mean, let's be reasonable. Or whatever it might be, you know, one more change of career, one more relationship, one more little move bubble. So then what happens is that the desire mind remembers the last time it, was, it felt good. And the last time that it felt good was back at the, at the bhava, at the becoming stage, that was when you last felt good. So what happens is that the the, re, the rational mind can kind of can sort of steer the ship, can steer things for you know while it's in control, while it's got enough strength. As soon as the control slips, then boom, the desire mind will take us straight back when that feeling is there, that uncomfortable feeling, then the desire mind will take over and just take us straight back into repeating the habit, and so then. Uh, we go through the same cycle over and over again. This is what addiction is. This is what how addiction works. So that um, and this is rebirth, redeath, rebirth, redeath. We get we get born into that process over and over because we don't see what's creating the cycle. We don't see um, that it's. Um, a process that we're we're contributing to, that we're we're feeding, and this is what the Buddha's insight was into uh, on the night of enlightenment was seeing that um, the if we are awake, if we are, if there's no ignorance, then this cycle does not get initiated. If there's mindfulness, if there's awareness, then what happens is there's a body, there's a mind. So we feel, we sense things, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch, we think, we remember. There's feeling. But we don't need to let that feeling turn into desire. Desire to get rid of, desire to become, desire to, to, to get. That's the weak link in the chain. 
that's where the chain can be broken. And that if we're mindful, then we can just live at the, at the level of feeling. We feel pleasure, okay, pleasant, very nice. Painful, okay, Does it hurts, no big deal. And we can, if we can sustain our awareness and live at the level of feeling, then the, the rest of the cycle is not initiated. The, the universe does not contract to that one particular thing that we've got to get a hold of, we've got to get, we've got to become, we've got to get away from. We live in a, we find ourselves living in a, in a whole universe rather than a fragmented one. So this is where the, the practice aims itself and, and how we, we transcend birth and death. This is what it's talking about. And this is not like, you know, say, just talking about transcending birth and death already sounds like some kind of big cosmological event. But, you know, just rewind back to this morning and see how many times, you know, that this kind of cycle has happened in our minds just during the course of, of today. How many times we've seen ourselves pursuing uh, reliving a, a painful memory, fantasizing about the future, um, desiring an object, and then seeing, you know, letting go of it, and realizing, oh, I didn't need that. This is a process we're seeing all the time. We just don't maybe recognize what it is that's going on. But if we can consistently uh, recognize that pattern, Feeling, craving, grasping, becoming, birth, death, and then the, the, the death experience, ego death, then conditioning the cycle. As we, as we get to know the pattern, then it becomes easier and easier to, kind of, to, to, uh, to catch it earlier and earlier on in the chain. And this is the point, like, because the further down the chain you are, then the more, the more difficult it is to, to stop it. If you're already at the kind of becoming birth end, it's like <laughs> the train is already out of the station, you know, it's going to be really messy if you try and get off. But if, we, if it's at the level of feeling, it's like the train is, hasn't started moving yet. You know, you can, you can get, up, get off onto the platform and it's no problem. So we begin to see where, usually as we begin to practice, we, can, we see desire arising. Like the desire to get away from a pain in the legs, the desire to to um, have the next meal, a, a desire to get to your favorite walking meditation path. You know, you, you name it, kind of in, <laughs> insert your favorite passion here. <laughs> Clinging to our own opinions, our own rights and wrongs, uh, our own preferences. We can see that. And then, as that takes off and takes and takes hold, and then we can we can loosen that. Why we, that's why we talk about letting go so much. That's where whether you're already into the realm of of desiring and grasping. But even at the level of grasping, when we see we're doing that, we can let go. We can release, and then it takes a bit of doing. But then we find, ha, ah, the heart is at ease. And really, um, you know, we're talking in terms of, of the, the conquest of death is maybe a bit melodramatic. Um, 
And it also it struck me some time ago, I, I was asked to give a talk on the um, full moon of May, festival day, Vesaka day. And um, the talk was called The Battle with Mara. But it's really, the, the thing was that the, the Buddha didn't pick up the fight. Mara was battling, but the, the whole point was that the, the Buddha didn't fight. There was no battle. In the same way, it's not really the conquest of death, because that which is real can't die anyway. It wasn't born and it, it won't die. It's the, un, the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, is the, the unconditioned mind. So it's really, we're not... Um, it's not as though we are already subject to death and then we're, we're, we're escaping from that. That which is real, the ultimate reality of your own being, what we are, is unborn, undying, is intrinsically free from death. But because the habit of the, the mind attaching to the born and the dying is so strong, that's how we think. We think that we are tied to, to birth and death, but that never has been the case. It's just looked that way. Rather like you know, the, the so we say the sun comes up in the morning, now it's night time, the sun has gone down. And we can even say exactly what time the sun is going to come up, what time it's going to go down. But the sun doesn't rise or set. It only appears to rise and set because of the turning of the earth. But it doesn't go anywhere, relatively speaking, to the earth. It doesn't go anywhere, it just sits where it is. And the earth spins around. That's what makes day and night. So in exactly the same way, you, know, you can use this as an analogy, that the ultimate reality, what we are, doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't, it doesn't arise, it doesn't fade away. It's not born, it doesn't die. Like sunrise and sunset, it's not going anywhere. It appears and disappears, because of the, the, the turning of the mind, attaching to pleasure and pain, success and failure, the body and personality. So it appears to be born, it appears to die, but, all, but that's not actually the case. In the same way when we talk about um, relinquishment, like in the, the, the beginning of the retreat, we're talking about um, self-surrender. But actually that which is, is being surrendered is not self. <laughs> you're not, it's not like anything is being lost. You're not, you're not losing anything that's actually yours. Because it's not ours in the first place. The body is not ours. The personality is not ours, it's not self. So as that, um, as we begin to sort of flip our perceptions around in this way, it's a radical redrawing of, of our, um, uh, the way we envision what we are. It's a, a complete kind of reshuffle. But it's really like just leaving the the um, uh, a set of perceptions based on on the earth and say taking the position of the sun that's all we're doing we're just 
no longer um, fixing on the uh, on that which is being born and dying, but instead taking refuge in, in that which is at the heart, that quality of, of knowing, that quality of awareness, which is always here, which is always at the center of things. And this is how how death is transcended. This is how we we stop suffering. And so if you want to know what happens to an enlightened being after the, the body dies, this is the way to do it. <laughs> because in that moment where the heart lets go, where, there's, where we are awake, where there's no identification, then at that moment we, we have a taste of, of Nibbana. Like the Buddha said, it's like a, the, the fragrance of, of the other shore. We meet the fragrance of the other shore, wafting across from the other shore. Now you can't describe that. You can say well, it's peaceful or it's pleasant. It feels good. <laughs> but that's you can't get much more specific than that. But this is what we are, are, are aiming at with our practice. And you can see that as we uh, as we work with the mind, the skillfulness of the Buddha using these very very simple tools. Why he limited his teaching to such um, in such a way, so that all we need all we need to know we've been given. That's all we need to know. It's like. Um, you don't need to, if you have a musical instrument, you don't need to be able to write equations for the vibration of, of, uh, of air inside a flute in order to be able to play the flute. That we can um, harmonize with other beings without, having, without being able to explain exactly how we do it. We can experience harmony. Exactly the same way. We don't have to understand the origin of the universe and the and the the the, the uh, intricacies of the karmic relationship of all beings, in order to be at, at at one with all beings, in order to be in harmony. All we need to do is to recognize when we make a bum note. What causes the what causes the bum note and how not to how not to do it in the future. That's, and then whether we can understand and explain how it all works or not is beside the point because there's harmony. The essential change has been made and the rest is, is extra. If we have a few little facts to juggle around and pass on, fine. If we don't, fine. But our, our life is, is totally uh, attuned. To, uh, to nature, to the way things are. And so all of our troubles are over. So on that note, I will uh, offer this for your reflection this evening.